Take your Bible, and if you will, to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to continue on in our study, working through this letter, verse by verse, and uh, simply titled the series, Rejoice. You know, 16 different times, Paul talks about joy, calls for the church to rejoice, or to have joy, and if you know, the, like I've told you many times, the context of which Paul's writing, he's in prison. He's there awaiting uh, a verdict coming from the emperor, as we learned in chapter 1, that can literally determine whether he lives or dies. And yet he is joyful. He's optimistic. He's going to make the best use of the time that he has, no matter how long that may be. And so we are called to find joy in Christ and his work. That's really what it's all about. Joy is not something you're going to find in things. It's not going to be found in people. It is only found in Jesus and doing the work of Jesus in this world. So Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 19 through 30 this morning and just simply looking at two great lights. We looked at last week that passage calling and, and, and exhorting us to shine as lights in a dark world. Now Paul's going to give us Two great examples of men who are doing just that. I want you to think about the color green as we get started, though. Uh, I don't know if that's your favorite color, uh, but green is, is one of my favorite. Blue is probably my top favorite, and my wife's fusses at me all the time because anytime I buy something, it's, it's blue. Right? I don't know what it is, but uh, I just like the color blue, but I also like the color green. And uh, so when we hear a lot about green these days, and I, I don't want to be political, but I just want to lay out some ideas and some thoughts that we hear about green, because this rhetoric is, is pervasive in uh, things that we read and things that we watch. We're always hearing about going green, uh, solar power, wind power, electric cars, living carbon neutral. These are all part of this movement, this, this concept, these products that are being pushed. And, and so the ideology behind going green uh, advocates for a clean and therefore a green planet. Have you ever met a person who would advocate, argue, uh, just dogmatic about wanting a dirty, filthy, contaminated environment? I've never met that person. There's probably one out there, deranged individual. But none of us want to live in an environment such as that. And when I fly overseas and, and go on short-term mission trips and stuff, we go to third-world countries. And I personally, I'm always grateful to get back on that plane and head back to the clean United States of America as opposed to all these other countries that don't understand the things that we have and enjoy in our culture. But I don't know anyone who wants a dirty world. Seems the opposite. We want to live in a beautiful, thriving, lush, green, growing world. That's what we want to call home. This past week, I had the privilege with one of our church members to uh, meet and enjoy lunch with an Egyptian pastor. I learned that he's from the southern region of Egypt. And so as we're talking there at lunch and enjoying some good fish, uh, just was trying to, in my mind, orient where he's from. And so I naturally just moved toward the Nile River because that's really that and a couple other cities about the only thing I know about Egypt. And so what do we know about the Nile River? Well, if you know your geography, you know that it runs north out of the country of Uganda through South Sudan into Sudan and then through the nation of Egypt and then dumps into the Mediterranean Sea. You also probably know that the Nile River runs through one of, if not the most arid places on the planet. 
In fact, I've flown over the nation of Egypt uh, numerous times going into uh, Central Africa. And so as you look out the plain, you look down there and you see the Sahara Desert, and it is absolutely nothing but a wasteland. But when you catch where the Nile River is or other rivers uh, are the same, what you see is, is there's green in the midst of all this brown. Green, lush life in the midst of barren, arid deadness or a wasteland. And so the Nile River brings life to that arid region. As we look here in Philippians chapter 2, you're like, where in the world are you going with this idea of green? You're jumping all over the page. When you think of green and this concept of greenness, what we're going to see in Philippians chapter 2 is Paul lays out these two individuals. We're seeing here that greenness is the test of a disciple. In other words, we are to flesh out, live out what Jesus modeled in his life. What we see in the New Testament, what we learn here is that the chief result of a disciple's life should be that which characterized the life of Jesus Christ and what characterized his life. He brought life. He raises the dead. He changes people's lives. Jesus makes things live. And so now the Lord is sending us as his disciples into a spiritually arid wasteland, and he expects us as disciples to leave it fertile, green, and full of life. Taking the image that Paul laid out for us in chapter 2, verse 15 that we looked at last week, we see that the Lord sends disciples out as lights in a dark world to shine and dispel the darkness. And so Paul there in chapter 2, what we're seeing is using a little bit of a different image. He says, shine as lights in a dark world. Let your life be contrasted against the lostness, the crookedness, the depravity of this world and model the light of Jesus. The idea of greenness says in the aridness and the wasteland that this sin creates in the world, bring life. That's what we're to do. We see an example of this through these two men as we finish up chapter two of this letter. And so let's, let's, let's just look at these two ordinary dudes. Hey, let me, before we read it, let me just say this. On the heels of what we've already seen, right, we might expect that there's some sort of uh, extraordinary story that's going to be presented. Some sort of individual or, 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 or an account that's just absolutely miraculous where the, the person or the, the group of people just in a miraculous, almost God type of way shine and model what Jesus or what Paul has been talking about, pressing out the life of Jesus. But that's not what we see as we're going to get into these final verses in this chapter. We see two ordinary dudes living out their life in the mundane ordinariness of routine life. Anybody live there? Mundane, everyday, going through the motions. I mean, we all have our schedules, and yet that is where God most of the time meets us and works in us and through us. We don't have to live, and most of the time won't live on the mountaintop. God meets you in the mundaneness, the ordinariness of life, and works in and works through you. Look at what we see here, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Let's read through verse 30. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. 
I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. These verses are interesting, right? I I doubt any of us in this room, those watching us online this morning, I I doubt any of us have our favorite verse in this passage of Scripture. Our favorite verses come before this. Our favorite verses come after this, right? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So we might read this and think that we have a little bit of a downer passage here. Thus far, what we've seen is Paul's talked about his ambition and vision in ministry. He's exhorted the Philippians to live worthy of the gospel. He's called them to work out the life of Christ within them. And if we moved into chapters 3 and 4, we're going to see there he offered more great teaching on theology. He, he explained even further how to find joy in Christ in various circumstances. And sandwiched in between all of that, what we have already examined... And what's going to come is basically a travel itinerary. Paul's saying, hey, I'm coming. I want to come, but until I can come, I'm going to send Timothy, and I'm going to send Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is going to come first, and Timothy is going to come later after I kind of figure out how things are going to go with me. Basically, the idea there is probably once I know my verdict from the emperor, I will send Timothy on. And so when we read this travel itinerary, you may wonder, should we skip over this? Kind of like we sometimes will skip over a genealogy. Never. You shouldn't skip over any part of Scripture. Here's what we know about the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is theonoustos, breathed by God. Therefore, it is on paper, on purpose, as Dave Ramsey would say. Right, Mark? Dave Ramsey? It's purposeful. And so this travel itinerary is purposeful. And so why is, it there? why is it there? Well, it's present because communication was important. Paul didn't have the luxuries that we have today. He couldn't pick up his cell phone. He couldn't log into his computer, pull up a FaceTime app, and begin to have a video conference with the church from his Roman prison to the church there in Philippi. How did he communicate? He sent correspondence through a courier. He sent letters back and forth. They sent letters to him. He sent letters to them. And so they sent messengers, missions, missionaries, if you will, ministers on their behalf. Epaphroditus was that man. And so the Philippian church was, as we know, supporting him. And so he wanted to extend thanks and outline his plans. So he wrote the letter. In addition, we read, as this chapter concludes, he's sending Epaphroditus back. He's going to send Timothy back. But Timothy's going to come later, and so he's going to explain those dynamics. Why is Epaphroditus coming? Why is he coming at this particular time? Why is Timothy going to be delayed? Why are they not coming together? He's laying all of that out. 
So we have the travel itinerary, which is common among letters in the New Testament. What's unusual here is that many times the travel itinerary will come at the back end of the letter. Here, it's in the middle. And so the question would be, why is it in the middle? Well, it seems that it fits the, the, the flow of the letter most, uh, most better. That's, not, that's what I was going to say, most better. That is that Archonese. You know, I press it down and it just wants to come out all the time. But the flow of the letter lent itself to this particular use of the travel itinerary. So he's not only telling them what's going to be taking place, he's also using them as an example of how to shine as a light in a dark world. How to let the green life of Jesus be pressed out in a barren, sinful wasteland. So he gives us living illustrations, two great lights. Let's look at them quickly. First we see... Timothy, in verses 19 through 24. Timothy, this great light. Now, we know Paul and Timothy shared not only a wonderful friendship, but they also were partners in the work of the gospel. That's what he says here in verse 22, a verse that I read earlier. Now, more than likely, Timothy had believed in Christ under Paul's preaching. Paul's first missionary journey, he comes to Derby and Lystra. He preaches the gospel, and most likely, Timothy came to faith in Jesus. Uh, tr- fast forward a little bit, Paul comes back on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16 and finds Timothy now growing, maturing in his faith. He enlists him into this mission work, and he begins to travel with Paul. They're preaching, they're planting churches, they're traveling across uh, the uh, Mediterranean area, and Paul is growing in Timothy's, in in relationship with Timothy and vice versa. And so Paul now at this point believes in and trusts this brother because there is no one else like him. They are knitted. The the language here speaks of how he is a like-souled individual. There's no one else like him. It's not so much that they have necessarily the common personalities. Paul, I believe, was this really strong A-type personality. And it seems, as Paul writes to Timothy in the pastoral epistles, that Timothy might have been a little bit reserved, maybe a little bit more of a type B personality, not so outgoing, not so aggressive, not so forcible. So it wasn't that they were identical, but their shared convictions, their shared beliefs, their their trust in Jesus and the gospel, those principles by which they lived their life intersected and coincided together. So Paul says two things about Timothy. First, Timothy possessed a genuine concern for others. We see this in verse 20. He had a genuine concern for others. For others. In other words, he wasn't just interested in winning friends and influencing people. Timothy wasn't concerned with having a crowd follow him. He wanted God to work dynamically in all of the people that he ministered to. He was genuinely interested in their physical and spiritual welfare. The same characteristic is found in Paul. I mean, Paul, throughout this letter, is writing, like I said, under arrest, awaiting trial, could have been fussing and complaining, grumbling about his situation, but he never does. Instead, he says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. I have joy in this. Paul was concerned about others, their physical and their spiritual welfare. Paul was concerned about the church in Philippi. And so he wants to send someone to convey this concern, get the facts about what's happening there and and the difficulties that they are facing. Uh, Paul 
probably wished that there were somebody in Rome that he could have sent. There were obviously hundreds of believers in the church there in Rome. Uh, Paul's letter that he writes later back to Rome mentions 26 different believers by name. So we know there's believers there, and yet there was no one like Timothy that he could trust and that he could entrust to go and to represent him to the believers there in Philippi. And so what we find here through the example of Timothy, as well as the example of the Roman believers, is that all of us probably live in one of two verses. We live in Philippians 1.21, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or we live in Philippians 2.21, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Let that sink in for a moment. Timothy was a man like Paul that says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I, I am sold out, 100% committed to the work of the gospel, 100% committed to, to investing the life of Jesus into others. I don't care what happens. I don't care how my life is used. I just want to be a, a vessel that shines for the glory of God. Or we are like those in Philippians 2.21 that are not interested in the things of God, too preoccupied by our own agendas and our own schedules. So Timothy had this dynamic about him. I would call it a supernatural concern for the welfare of others. You see, it's, this is not something you conjure up. Paul's already said in 2.5, have this mind which was also the mind of Christ Jesus. Let it be who you are. What is the mind of Christ? Submissive. Others-centered. That's who Timothy was. That's who Paul was. He focused on and cared for others over and above himself. That does not come naturally. You're not going to just wake up on a Saturday morning and be like, I want to just spin myself on behalf of others. No, that's something that, that comes from the inside. That wells up from the life of Jesus in you. As you allow your life, the life of Jesus, to be pressed out, as you mine that out of your life. He also says, not only was he possessing genuine concern for others, but he possessed faithful service in the gospel, verse 22. He served with me in the gospel. He faithfully served like an apprentice serving his teacher. He faithfully serves like a son serving his father. But it wasn't just serving Paul. He's serving alongside Paul in the gospel. That's what we need to catch here. Paul, Paul is commending Timothy because he was faithful in the work of the gospel. He possessed a proven track record in the work of the gospel. He had a good testimony. If you were to go to Acts chapter 16, when Paul comes back to Derby and Lystra, and he learns about this young man who's come to faith in Jesus, he, the Bible tells us that he was a man who had a great reputation. He had a good testimony. There's a big difference between having a title and having a testimony. You can have a title and be worthless as a dog. But if you have a testimony, that's something to rejoice in the Lord for. It doesn't matter what title you hold. What's your testimony? How are you living your life for the Lord? Timothy had the title, or he had the testimony. He didn't care if he was called an apostle. He didn't care. I don't, I don't believe Timothy cared to be known as Paul's companion in the work. I think Timothy's heart was, I am in Christ, and that's enough. It's about Jesus. It's about his life being lived out 
through mine. Timothy is a great light. Second light we see here is Epaphroditus. We see this in the latter part of this chapter, verses 25 through 30. And so here we read that Paul plans to send Epaphroditus to Philippi first because of their concern over his health and the distress that Epaphroditus is now feeling, the anxiousness that he's feeling because he knows that the church is worrying and is concerned about him. And so what happened in all this is that Epaphroditus had been sent by the church at Philippi to Rome, 800-mile journey from Philippi to Rome. Probably would have taken six-plus weeks to get there. On this journey, more than likely, Epaphroditus comes down with a sickness, an illness. We don't know if it's flu or whatever. Somehow he gets sick, and it's not just a common cold. It, comes to, it gets so bad that it comes to the point where he's literally about to die. But God is gracious, God is merciful, and he lives. And so he's nursed back to health, whether on the way to Rome or after he gets to Rome. He is nursed back to health and becomes a valuable blessing to Paul. Why was he headed to Rome in the first place? He's headed to Rome because the church has sent him to be a blessing to Paul. Paul's the one who planted the church. Paul's who was the one who's discipled them. Paul is their patriarch in the faith, and they're deeply concerned about his welfare. So they can't all come, so they send Epaphroditus, who is a messenger and a minister on their behalf. There in Rome, Paul is blessed through the ministry and the gift that Epaphroditus not only is, but that he brings to him. So somehow... The church learns of his sickness, and they become deeply concerned about Epaphroditus. Notice what Paul says here about this man and how he is a great light. He shines bright in the darkness. Paul speaks of Epaphroditus as a Christian brother. Look there, verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. Think about what he says here. Paul calls him a brother. He doesn't say my protege. He doesn't say my, my, my convert. He doesn't say uh, my, my servant boy. He says my brother. You see, in the church, there's no such thing as, as spiritual elitism. There's no person that's over and above someone else. Paul's an apostle. We don't even see that Epaphroditus carries the title of deacon. He's just a faithful worker on the behalf of Jesus. But Paul calls him a brother. So for us, everyone who knows Christ as Lord and Savior, we know that we've been adopted by the Father through Jesus Christ. And so we're all on the same level ground. In salvation, we not only experience a new life with God. Here's, here's what we need to understand. We experience a new relationship with other people believers. We are now called brothers and sisters. I'm not saying we need to go around saying, hey, brother, so-and-so. We don't necessarily need to do that, but we ought to have the understanding and the wherewithal to know that we are, if we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are family. Amen. We're family. And many times what you see in the New Testament is that your spiritual family becomes closer to you than your blood family. Because there's times back then, it happens today all around the world, that when you say no to your former faith, your former gods, the way you used to live, and you say yes to Jesus and the gospel, it has a way oftentimes to turn you or to turn your family against you. 
So you're ostracized. You lose your blood kin. And so who do you, who's your family now? It is your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Paul calls him a brother. This is an identity change that takes place here. Paul's use of this term highlights the identity change, but I believe also it speaks of his affection. Paul loved Epaphroditus. He was a blessing and a ministry to his life. Second thing we see here that Epaphroditus was a Christian worker. He was a fellow worker, a co-laborer in the mission of the gospel. Now, apostle, uh, Paul was obviously an apostle here. He was more visual. He's out front. He's the leader. Epaphroditus was someone who was behind the scenes, but it didn't matter. Paul looked at him and said, you're a brother in Christ, but also you're a fellow worker in the gospel. Same is true for us. We're all on the same playing field. We're all on level ground when it comes to the work of the gospel. There may be some of us who have a more out front visual perspective. And sometimes you may think, boy, I wish I had that limelight. Let me tell you, you don't. You don't want that. Right, Ricky? Ricky, I didn't like that music. I wish we could sing this song. Thankfully, in our church, we don't hear a lot of that. We're blessed. Let me just tell you, we are blessed as a church. We are unified. We are loving to one another. We're caring. But I have been in places. I've been with church families. I've served those. And I have friends all over the country who are serving today in very difficult churches. But God has been gracious and merciful to us as a church. So let's just glory in that for a moment. But let's continue that for the praise and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here admonishes, or I shouldn't say admonishes, he, he acknowledges uh, Epaphroditus as a godly Christian worker. He's not taking a superior position. He's uh, elevating him and saying, we are on equal ground. He's a Christian worker. Thirdly, he's a Christian soldier. Paul changes the image a little bit. Goes really to one of his favorite images of the Christian life, that of warfare, battlefield. He and Epaphroditus, if you know what's going on here, have been through a spiritual battle together. You say, what spiritual battle? Epaphroditus almost died. Why do you think he died? It, was because, it wasn't just because he got sick. There's a spiritual warfare thing that's going on all the time. I mean, what would the devil want more than to do something discouraging to the life of Paul, to, to steal the blessing that the church wants to be to his life? And so he infects him with the disease. He wants to take him out, but God is always in control. God is merciful to Epaphroditus. And so in the midst of this spiritual battle that's taking place, Paul recognizes it and understands. And so they've been through the fire together. And when you go through the fire together, what does it do? It bonds you. It bonds you. I've said it many times that in church, many, many, many times, the people that you will become close to or closest to are the ones that you've served overseas with or are the ones that you have walked together through a very difficult time in life. It bonds you together because of that spiritual battle. Epaphroditus is a fellow soldier. Fourthly, we see he describes him as a Christian servant. Now Paul's moving from describing his relationship with this man to describing the relationship the church had with this man. He was their messenger. He was sent there with a mission to convey the love of the church and to give a gift to the apostle. He was their minister, sent on their behalf. The word here that's translated minister carries the idea of priestly service. It's not speaking of a position. It's speaking of a function. Epaphroditus was sent to carry out the service of the church to the apostle who's in a difficult spot. 
He's a messenger. He is a minister. He's a Christian servant. And so when we think about this, the Bible teaches us that all believers are God's priests. We, we call this in Southern Baptist life the priesthood of the believer. And so all believers are called to worship God through sacrificial service. Paul lays this out in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Let your life be that type of offering, that type of sacrifice unto God. We're all priests of God. How do we worship the Lord? We sing, obviously, but worship is not us coming and singing. You, don't know, you know that, right? The worship service is more than just, worship is more than the worship service, and worship is definitely more than the music part of the worship service. Worship is all of life. Worship is praying. Worship is serving others. Worship is giving your resources on behalf of another, ministering and meeting others' needs. That's all worship as unto the Lord. That's our service to the Lord and to others. And so this great servant of God carried out his duty even at the risk of his life. But it seems here that he was never concerned about his own well-being. I don't know if you noticed that, but Paul never talks about, when he's corresponding back to the church, saying Epaphroditus was really stressed out about the fact that he almost died. It's almost like he never thought about it. Just like Paul never thought about his own mortality. Instead, his mind is always on other people. Epaphroditus is not concerned about himself. He's concerned about his home church. He's concerned about how anxious they are because they just don't know the news. Again, he can't get on the computer and FaceTime with them and say, I'm okay. It's going to take six weeks or more to get the information back. In those six weeks, they just don't know. Has he died? Has the funeral happened? What's, what's taking place here? Deeply concerned for his brothers and sisters back home. Two great lights. So as we've walked through chapter 2 over the last few weeks, we see in the verses 5 through 11, Paul gives us a theology of a Christian. Verses 12 through 18, we see an exhortation of a Christian, how we're to live, shine as lights. Now in this passage, we see the type of lifestyle that should mark the life of a Christian, a genuine Christian. Here, I want you to hear this statement. Believers should possess genuine concern for others. Model faithful service in the gospel. Live as a brother. Operate as a worker. Maneuver as a soldier. And give himself as a servant. That's what these men model for us. Two great lights. Shining against the backdrop of a sin-stained world. And we need a model, don't we? We all need a model to follow. Christian characters, think about this, is as much caught as it, as, as it is taught. We need someone to, to flesh it out. We need to see it in, in, in 3D, not just read it in 2D on a paper. These men, along with Paul, flesh it out. Came across in my studies this week uh, an illustration of this, um, this idea of imitation and learning from that. D.A. Carson, one of the commentators that I read often, shares a story from his time as a college student at McGill University. He and another guy, during those early years working on his undergraduate degree, uh, started a Bible study, an evangelistic Bible study, to try to reach some, some guys on the campus who needed a relationship with Jesus. And so these guys are green. They don't know much. I mean, D.A. Carson is, is, is in his senior years now. He's been a, a, just a faithful preacher, a faithful scholar for, for decades. But early on, like all of us, he was wet behind the ears, as my grandparents used to say. Y'all know that phrase? Sometimes I use phrases, and I'm like, like I said uh, the other day, loss is a goose and a hailstone. When people came up to me afterward, what does that mean? 
I don't know. I grew up in Arkansas. That's, we say that in Arkansas. So if you don't know the other euphemism I use, I'll tell you later what it means. So when there was a difficult question that came from someone in this Bible study, what, what D.A. Carson would do is he would bring that guy or person to, to a guy named Rick. Rick was a graduate student, a little bit older, uh, very uh, A-type personality, strong, uh, abrupt. Uh, maybe not abrupt is a good word, but um, um, short in the way he responds. He tells another funny story. I don't have time to tell about that. But this guy named Dave... Uh, Carson would bring people to. And so one particular time, uh, Carson brought to Dave a guy named Rick. And so when Dave met Rick, Rick began to set up the situation for his question. He says, I come from what you people would call a liberal home. We don't believe the way you do, but it was a good home, a happy home. My parents loved their children, disciplined us, set a good example, and encouraged us to be courteous, honorable, as well as hard working. And for the life of me, Rick says, I don't understand. I cannot see that you people who think of yourselves as Christians are any better than us. Apart from a whole lot of abstract theology, what have you got that I haven't got? And so you can imagine that sort of correspondence. Dave uh, being sort of a um, stern type of guy stares at Rick and uh, probably stares longer than was comfortable, and all of a sudden he just, in, he just utters a phrase, watch me, watch me. Rick's puzzled, he, so I, I don't really understand what you're trying to get across here. What, what do you mean, watch you? And so say, Dave says, watch me. Come live with me for a month if you like. Be my guest. Watch what I do when I get up. Watch what I do when I'm on my own. Watch what I do and how I work. Watch how I use my time. Watch how I talk with people and what my values are. Come with me wherever I go. And at the end of the month, you tell me if there's any difference. It's pretty audacious. Rick didn't take him up fully on the offer, but Rick was intrigued. Rick began to hang out a lot more. Rick began to to spend some time with Dave. And little by little, Dave allowed his life. He modeled Christ in his life. And that began to rub off onto Rick. And so Rick came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Here's a man who was nothing at best a deist, comes into relationship with Jesus, radically transformed, marries a Christian woman. Both of them are MDs. They spent their lives serving the kingdom of God using their profession. All because they've said, watch me. God blesses his children with models and guides to follow. These are two such men. How do we respond to this type of model? I'm going to give you three quick things here, and we will close up right on time. It's my favorite song. Inside joke, I mean, Ricky, our worship pastor, always says this is our favorite song, and we sing the song that says this is my favorite song, so I had to take a little shot at him, but uh, I know we got guests in the house. How do we respond to God's great servants? Three things. First of all, we see here, Paul says, receive them. Look at verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. Uh, He's already commended them to the church, right? In verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. That's really uh, an idea of a roundabout way of saying he's coming, receive him. 
He says the same thing about Epaphroditus. So we as believers in Jesus Christ, understanding that God in his goodness and grace gives us examples to look at and to emulate, what are we to do? We receive them into our lives. Receive them as brothers. Receive them as shining lights who are good examples. When you receive something or someone, think about what you're doing. You're bringing that thing. You're bringing that person into your life. We bring things into our life all the time. Unfortunately, many times those are detrimental things. God is telling us in his word here that we need to receive the blessing of models, Christian uh, uh, discipleship into our lives with joy. It's a blessing of God. Not resist them, but receive them. Here's what happens, though, when we know that we don't measure up to someone else's personification of the life of Jesus, rather than them coming in and their light exposing the dark areas of our lives. You you know what I'm talking about, right? When you get around a person you know is walking on a level with Jesus that you're not, it makes you uncomfortable. And if you're not careful, your flesh and the enemy whispering in your ear will say, you know what, I wouldn't hang around them. Keep your distance. What we need to do is receive, learn, model, emulate them in our lives. Second thing, he tells us to honor them. Not only receive them, Lord, with all joy, but honor such men. Paul here is instructing the church to show their appreciation and give respect to Epaphroditus because of his service in the gospel work. Some commentators would, would comment on this and say it could have been thought that the church in Philippi was a little bit embarrassed because their gift that they sent to Paul in the person of Epaphroditus and what he carried with him came in a weak manner because he got sick. And so if that is the case, Paul is writing back to the church saying, hey, don't worry about what happened to him. He risked his life for the sake of the gospel. Honor him, respect him, elevate him because of his commitment to Christ and his commitment to the church. We want to honor men and women who serve in the gospel work. Thirdly, we want to mimic them. We want to emulate them. We're going to get to Philippians 3.17 in a few weeks. But listen to what Paul says there uh, to this church. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul is saying, hey, I'm an example for you to follow. Epaphroditus is an example for you to follow. Timothy is an example for you to follow. Mimic our lives. Emulate how we walk with Jesus. Emulate how we serve others. Emulate how we preach the gospel. The exhortation here has been that the church should shine as lights in a dark world. And these men are examples of doing just that. The church should notice and the church should mimic the patterns of life that they are fleshing out. And we want to do the same in the church today. We want to learn and grow from the investment of others into our life. Here's what we ought to do in our Christian discipleship. Snuggle up with someone who's walked with Jesus longer than us. Snuggle up in a Christian way, by the way. It's a joke. Learn from them. We got a goal as a church, and we'll be laying this out here soon, maybe in our elders or our members meeting uh, this next month, this month. We want to see, I think it's 40, 40 of our people 
go through a discipleship group this year, this next church year, so through summer, or September through August of this 2022 year. We want to see 40 of our folks be in and go through a discipleship group. We've launched them a few years back. This past year has just made it impossible. Um, um, now I, I meet with one individual, uh, one of our staff members is meeting with some folks. And so we're trying to model that, but it's been hard the last two years. But now that things are getting to normal, whatever that is, I'm, I'm dead determined that we are normal no matter what. But we want to see people disciple. And so what we see here is, man, we need to follow and learn from other Christian brothers and sisters. Allow them to speak in their life. Teach us how they read the word. Teach us how they pray. Teach us how they share the gospel. Teach us how they serve people in their neighborhoods and in the community, what they're doing in the church. You need that in your life, right? Like three people amen that. Everybody should have said, I need that in my life. Mimic them. Learn from other believers. Why? Because greenness is the test of a disciple. We're all living in a spiritually arid wasteland, and so we want to and we need to cultivate a fertile and green culture that is full of life. Powhatan needs to feel the, the life of Jesus, and it's going to happen as we live that out here. We see nothing flashy in this passage of Scripture, and yet that's what we're drawn to. We, we, we are in a culture of sensationalism, right? But what we see here is just two ordinary dudes living an ordinary Christian life. But we want to see the extraordinary. We're drawn to the dramatic. We, we want to be inundated and, and uh, influenced by this sensational. I mean, think about what sensationalism is. Sensationalism is this. When you turn your television set on and you're just watching the local news, what do they talk about? The worst thing that they could have. Like the weather is always just adjectives that make it sound like the world is coming to an end. That's what we hear all the time. So we cannot sit and be still and, and listen to a sermon. We can't sit and be still and read the Bible because we're drawn to the dramatic. And yet God works in the non-dramatic many times, in the ordinariness of our life, just faithful Christian living came across this way to illustrate it, and I'll close with this. Christian service does not always, in fact, rarely requires the ultimate sacrifice. Here's what we think about Christian service, martyrdom. That's the ultimate Christian service, laying your life down. Absolutely, that's a Christian service, but it comes to very few. More than likely, none of us in this room or our children or grandchildren will be asked by the Lord to physically lay your life down for the sake of the gospel. If you are my prayer is that you will gladly and with rejoicing do so. But what does the Lord ask of us? To die daily. To lay it down in service to the Lord. So let's just put, put this picture or this idea in the picture of a monetary gift. Think of the ultimate sacrifice as a one-time million-dollar offering. And if you have that this morning, we will take it. I just want to make sure you know that. <laughs> Where I signed a contract on a renovation this past week. We will take the million-dollar offering. But for the sake of illustration, a one-time million-dollar offering is what we would think of as the ultimate offering. Here's my life, Lord. I give it all. But what does the Lord do oftentimes? He says, all right, wait, I, don't want, I don't want to get, take it all at one time. Take your million-dollar offering, your ultimate offering. Go down to the bank, cash it in. Get quarters. And then what does he do? He says, live your life in such a way that your ultimate offering to the Lord, your life, is 
bucks. It's, it's peddled out one quarter at a time. 25 cents here, 50 cents over here. Little things, serving the Lord, serving the brothers and sisters in the church, serving the community. And so it looks like this. It's befriending the kid that lives down the street who comes from a broken home. It's caring for the elderly woman who has outlived her friends and has no family. It's babysitting for the single mom. It's being a foster care family so you meet the darkness with the light of the gospel. It's ministering to people in tragedy and pain. It's helping someone move across town. It's seeing a need and simply stepping in to meet it. This is the example that we see in these two great lights, Timothy and Epaphroditus, two ordinary guys living an ordinary Christian life in service to the Lord. This morning, may we go and do likewise. But if you don't know Jesus this morning, you can't go and do likewise. Here's what we want to do in our time of invitation. And I said we're right on time. I lied. Here's the invitation. If you're a follower of Jesus... Learn from the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Receive them, honor their example, mimic their example. Get around someone who can help you to live that way. Press that out through your life. So here's the, here's the, the response time for you. Lord, show me in the areas of my life that don't look like what we've seen here. And help me to walk in, in, in a better way. So as we sing or whatever, maybe you need to come up front. Maybe you need to wheel around in your seat, take a knee, whatever you need to do. Maybe you need to go to someone and say, hey, the Lord is speaking in my life. I, I, I need you to, to, to be my Timothy. I need you to be my Epaphroditus. Let's respond. But if you don't, don't know Jesus this morning, here or even online, you, you can't do anything that we've talked about until you know Jesus. There's no life in you yet. You're dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 1. You need Jesus. The Bible gives us good news. The Bible says he loves you, he cares for you, he created you. He wants to be your friend. He wants to be your God. He wants to be your Savior. The bad news is your sin. You're separated from him. You're under the just judgment of a holy God. Your future is eternal separation in a place called hell. But the great news is, is that God has come to pay the penalty for your sin so that if you will put faith in him and turn from your sin, you can be forgiven and experience all that God has intended for your life.